today from Ruth 1 verses 15 through 18 in the Shed Bible it's page 245 <clears throat> look said Naomi your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her but Ruth replied don't urge me to leave you or to turn my back from you where you go I will go and where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your God my God where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Hear the word of the Lord. Hill, may the Lord be with you. My name is Ashley. If we haven't met, I'm one of our co-lead pastors here at Mars Hill, and it truly is a joy to be in the midst of the people of God this morning. Before we begin, in case you didn't know, our very own Kyle Lake, family life director and anthem pastor, he's qualified for the Boston Marathon, y'all. We are very proud of you, Kyle. So this is your opportunity, Mars Hill, to send in notes, teddy bears, chocolates, or whatever runners eat before a race. And if you want to, you can bring them on here. We'll just shower Kyle with our encouragement and our love before Boston. This is a huge deal. He's training right now. Ben Hammer, who's in our community, is training him. So pray for Ben as well. And we can't wait to celebrate Kyle as he crosses that finish line. We're proud of you, Kyle. Um, I remember running once. <laughs> it was intense. 
But it was a race of a different kind. Take a look. This is my dad and me back in 1991, the, the good old days. And I think if you look closely, my foot is completely off the ground. I don't even think, <laughs> I don't even think I made contact with the ground this day. And here's what I remember about sack races such as this one. One person usually got dragged, am I right? <laughs> because the other person was either faster, taller, impatient, so what you got was this. In Mars Hill, if you have some extra time, go onto YouTube, and there's hours of fun in this realm, should you choose it. Just Google uh, sack race fail, okay? That's, that's free. Um, so I think about this three-legged race, and I've been wondering what versions of community we've been sold that make it easy to leave each other behind. For some of us, it's the version that encouraged us to surround ourselves with the most likely to succeed, the stronger, faster, more prestigious people with the right social status or pedigree. For some of us, it was the version where we were conditioned to swipe right to the version of community that's more about physical compatibility versus commitment, preference versus patience, chemistry versus character. For others, we've been sold the version of community that doesn't include you. Because of your age, your generation, your relationship status, or something you've done that feels, makes you feel like you've been disqualified. Perhaps you think you're invisible, that no one would miss you. And some of us have been sold the go at it alone version. We don't need anyone. We're fine by ourselves. Thank you very much. Spoil alert. This isn't a sermon this morning about why community is good for you. I'm sure we could find a study with reports about how people in community live longer, are less lonely. Instead, I'm wondering how the different versions of community we've bought into either help or hinder us from being grounded in relationship with one another as the people of God. Last week, we started this new series called Grounded in Troy, talked about being grounded in Christ. But as we consider what it means to be grounded in community, here's what I think happens. We pursue our own formation and then skip over to outward mission, but without figuring out the vision for the community right in our midst, right around us, because we're not sure exactly what that's for. It becomes easier to go over there to that nonprofit to that country where we can give of our resources or our time or our energy and make an impact that we, yes, we can see, we know we've done some good, but then we can leave no strings attached, without obligation. But here, 
in this shed watching online. At Mars Hill Grand Rapids, here you stay a while and stuff gets messy, uncomfortable, change happens. So what do we do? What, what ends up being our response? Some of us, we cannonball in headfirst anyway, just kind of hoping it works out. Some of us, we don't want to get too involved, so we hang in the shadows. We're consistently a visitor. Or maybe after a while, we bolt for the doors because it got too hard and we have folks wondering why, like that poor little boy, we've been left in the dust. So here's what's at stake, Mars Hill. Community, in the context of our carefully marketed culture of consumerism, will become a commodity. Just like our coffee, our cars, our skincare. And when community is commodified, it's marketed just like other commodities to convince us not to be satisfied with a new product per se, but to be dissatisfied with what you already have. If we as God's people are going to be a credible witness to a lonely, isolated, increasingly technologically and physically distanced world, Mars Hill, our communal life together must proclaim a God who created in community, a God who came to redeem community, and a God whose presence stays. Now, I'm not dipping into individual relationships where hard boundaries are right and good for the sake of safety. I'm talking about reclaiming the why for being grounded as a people of God right here. A why that goes beyond the reasons we'd gather for a concert or the Michigan game or a golf outing or a girls' night. And there's one narrative in scripture that I kept coming back to in thinking about what it means to be grounded as a community of God where groundedness is so beautifully on display and that's the story of Ruth. If you're not familiar with the whole story, here's a quick overview. There's a woman named Naomi, and she and her family leave Bethlehem to go to Moab because there's a famine in their land. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he ends up dying there. And both of her sons take Moabite wives, but they end up dying as well. Here's why that's important. Naomi, without a husband or sons to take care of her, she is now considered socially, politically, and economically vulnerable. Furthermore, she's left with two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. The Moabites were considered hostile toward Israel and were polytheistic pagans. So while marriage to Moabitesses were permitted, there were restrictions on their participation in the congregation. Take a look at the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Now, I want you to hold on to that. At this point, 
Naomi releases her daughters-in-law back to their mothers in Moab, essentially giving them permission to start new families, to create a new community. And Orpah, she does go back. We don't know why, and there's no apparent cue for us that we should judge her for leaving. But she does return to her family. But what do we do when there's a choice? When it seems like there could be two options. There are some reasons why leaving one community and either returning home like Orpah or going to another community are right and good. That's how Delwyn and I got here. Reasons like a move of obedience to a calling or pursuing a job or being a good and faithful steward of your family. Being grounded in community doesn't mean we'll never relocate. But what happens when we get there? How do we choose to participate in the community of God? We see between Naomi and Ruth a kind of commitment and groundedness that is characterized, I think, in three ways. The first is clinging. Ruth 1, verses 14, at this they wept aloud again. See, these women were bound together in their grief. So before we even talk about community, there's something beautiful that we see, that there was something to grieve, and they took the time to lament before they parted ways. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Such an interesting word, clung. In Hebrew, this means to cleave. Now, where have we heard this before, Mars Hill? Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. We're in this narrative, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. It's the same word. And they shall be one flesh. This word means to keep close, to fasten, to grip. One translation even defines it as to remain steadfast or to be stuck together. Three-legged sack race, to be stuck together. Ruth, even in her grief after losing her husband, when it may have been easier to go back home to her family and start over, even when it had made more sense to be close to all she knew, the gods that they worshipped, Ruth stuck herself to Naomi. She stayed with her leg in Naomi's sack. Church, when times get tough for us, when grief is overwhelming or loss is close to the chest, Ruth shows us what it means to lean in and cling versus to isolate, numb, or resolve to figure things out on our own. Mars Hill, some of you have been clinging to this community in the wake of loss. And some because of pain or grief, we've lost you. And first, can I say, because I don't think I get many opportunities to say this, if there's someone who used to be in this room and who isn't anymore, we miss you. But even if you're not here, 
My encouragement is that you'd cling to community, that you wouldn't go it alone. We get this when we're kids, right? When we're scared or when we're sad. I'm sure at some point we tried to find somebody's leg to cling to. This happened this morning, by the way. When I was walking out the door and little three-year-old journey bug came and fastened herself to the back of my leg and I had to give one of these, like a little shake, lovingly of course, to get her to stay inside the door. But there's something about clinging in community, staying grounded when we have an out that sets the stage for God's activity in our midst as we'll see here in Ruth and Naomi's story in just a minute. There's a book called The Wisdom of Stability. And in this book, this story is of a man who relocated with his family and he joined a new church and the pastor asked how it was going. And things were going great, except the man said, we, we haven't been finding the community that we've been looking for. This hasn't really met our expectations. And then the pastor asks, well, tell me, how long have you been coming here? And the man said, I've been coming here for about a year. It's really interesting, the pastor's response. The pastor said, well, I guess you have about a year's worth of community. Stay another year, and you'll have two years' worth. Stay for 30, and you might find what you're looking for. The point, clinging, settling in, it pays off. But the restlessness that Troy talked about last week will threaten the very thing that we're looking for. Trust me, I know I'm a millennial. First question for us, Marcel, who are you clinging to? Not what, who? The second characteristic I see in this story is that of naming, naming. What we call each other matters. Curious, what, what did you call the people who sit in your row or your section before Tim asked you to get their names? Would you have called each other Mars Hillians? Hey, you, plaid guy, do you not call them anything at all? It's interesting because my hunch is more often than not, we approach each other within the context of our gathering here in the shed, or if you're in Grand Rapids tonight, later on at ECC, like the people who pass us in the grocery store, or the folks who fly past us on 131. Most people are extras in the story. We know they're there, but they're in our periphery. In the context of Christ's church, if everyone else becomes just an extra, then chances are they're easy to either ignore or leave. They can come or go, it it doesn't matter. We'll likely forget them, and they will likely forget us. In chapter two, Ruth is now interacting with Boaz, who, spoiler alert, ends up redeeming her and they have a kid. And she says, 
Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She knows that as a Moabite, now back in Bethlehem, she's the outsider. She's the one of these things is not like the other, the one who doesn't belong. But what does Naomi call her in chapter one and again in chapter two? She says, my daughter. She calls her my daughter. She dignifies, sees, and enfolds her by what she chooses to call her. Despite the fact that she's a widow, despite where she comes from, Naomi uses a word of endearment, belonging, and affection. And my guess is, as Ruth and Naomi were turned to Bethlehem together, the others in Bethlehem likely heard Ruth called, not Moabite, not stranger, not just hey you, but they heard Naomi call her daughter. And I like to imagine that because of what Naomi called her, not only did those who were paying attention treat her differently, but I imagine Ruth began to think differently about who she was. Poet and author Maya Angelou, she says this, words are things. You must be careful, careful about not calling people out of their names because words are things they get on the walls, they get in your wallpaper, they get in your rugs, in your upholstery, in your clothes, and finally, they get into you. I think we underestimate the power of how we address one another as the people of God. I think perhaps when we're not paying attention for no fault of our own, I think perhaps we see each other as neutral at best when it comes to the community of God, easily to overlook or leapfrog to get to the worthy cause, to get to the missions trip, to get to the poor neighborhood. We overlook one another rather than seeing each other as noteworthy, vital, and irreplaceable parts of the body of Christ. Here's my guess. If your ear goes missing, you'd notice. I, I hope you would notice. If your eye got poked out, the hand would fly up to soothe it. Why? Because each part of the body knows the function of the others and that the full well-being of the body depends on all the parts being present and in full working order. Are you with me? How would your experience in this community change if you walked into the shed next week and saw every single person as vital to your individual and our collective flourishing. Author Nathan Oates says that what keeps him from running away from hard things is believing that his staying will be good for someone else. And he likely felt that way because he knew his part mattered. Do you know when I read that, that was a light bulb moment for me? The fact that he said, my staying matters to someone else. When we flip the script and actually see our presence 
as vital to the community of God. We wake up with a different pep in our step, church. We can't wait to get to where we are going because we know something powerful happens when we gather together. And one way that we affirm others and remind ourselves of that truth is by being intentional with what we call one another. John 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves because the master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. He changes what he calls his disciples. The name change came with the relationship change. Same for Peter, Paul, Abraham, Sarah. The changed name means something. So Mars Hill, what should we name one another? Here's my challenge. Let's be really good at knowing one another's actual names. And if you don't know a name, what would it be like to intentionally call every person who walked around the shed brother or sister or kinfolk, as Troy said a couple years ago, to remind them of who they are to you and who they are in Christ, to remind yourself that in Christ, we've all been adopted into the family of God, no exceptions. Every single one of us has been adopted in. Despite our divisions, our differences of opinion, a community that is grounded knows each other's names and knows what each person brings to the family. And when that happens, my guess is that is really hard to leave. The third characteristic is witnessing. If community is just for us, we will miss out on this final distinctive of what it looks like to be grounded in community. Boaz takes Ruth as his wife and he says to the elders and all those who are watching at the gate, today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we, are witnesses. They witnessed Boaz's commitment and then they blessed Ruth in chapter four. Church, you are not simply here to check off the box of your personal spiritual syllabus. We are witnesses. Witnesses cling. Witnesses know one another, their worth. Witnesses pay attention and stick around long enough to see the sometimes long coming work that God is doing in other people's lives. We don't commit to being grounded in community so we end up with an insular country club of best friends. We don't commit to being grounded in community because community makes us feel better or live longer. We stay grounded in community because it's not just part of our lives, it's the entire context in which God designed the restoration of all things. John 17, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me, that is us, that all of them may be one, sack leg race that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you may they also believe in us 
so that the world, this is our why, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Mars Hill, community isn't about being a spiritual insular club. And may I be the first pastor, perhaps, to say to you, I am so sorry if what you have experienced is exclusivity and not come on down because you're part of us. I'm sorry if that's been your experience here or anywhere else because our clinging, our unity as brothers and sisters is our witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. So where's the good news for Ruth, the Moabite? She marries Boaz, has a son named Obed. Well, I'll show you. Let's skip over to the Gospel of Matthew together, chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Abed by Ruth, and Abed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Remember the law we read back in Deuteronomy? No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Forget the assembly. Try being part of the lineage now. That's the payoff. That's redemption. And that is really, really, really good news. That where the, where the law drew a line, Jesus said, you're part of my lineage. You're part of me. What good news for all of us outsiders. All of us Moabites. So what does that look like in our day? Here's an example. This is Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel to your far right. He was a Jewish theologian and philosopher in 1963. Both he and Dr. King stood against the Soviet Union's treat treatment of its Jewish population. King said he couldn't neglect the plight of his, get this, of his brothers and sisters who happened to be Jews in Soviet Russia. Then in 1965, Heschel joined the Selma Montgomery March for Voting Rights, saying he felt like his legs were praying as he stood next to King. These two men, with their arms linked, these two men clung to one another. They knew each other's worth as brothers and they bore witness to what God was doing during the civil rights movement. They chose to be grounded in community despite differences, despite risk, despite weariness. 
And I just want to say to you this morning, Mars Hill, this can be us. This is us. Cling. Call one another by the names that are true. Bear witness. And over time, I believe we will see the redemption of God in our midst. Even in COVID, even in political division, even in racial tension, I believe we will see the redemption of God in our midst. But I need you here because I need your life to testify to the good, faithful work that God is doing in you. I need you. I know many of y'all say, yeah, we need you. We're so glad that you're here. No, I'm glad that you're here, Mars Hill. Thank you for being here, being a daily witness to who our God is. So to that end, just a little bit of a challenge, some homework. Before you leave today, I want you to find one or two people around you that you do not know already, okay? No cheating. And I want you to get their name and whatever contact information they're comfortable with. Phone, email address, Insta handle, whatever they're comfortable with. You get their information and this week figure out why they are needed here and why you need them. What vital part of the body do they represent? Then I want you to check on them this week. Pray together if that is available. If they don't show up next Sunday, ask. Say that you miss them. Check on them for goodness sake. Our pastoral staff, we do this, but we can't do it with everybody. So this is your commissioning. This is your commissioning to be the people of God. Let us live out what it means to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world by starting in this room because we can't show the world something we don't have. Amen. So as we move to the table, there's a part of Ruth's narrative in chapter two where at mealtime, Boaz says to Ruth, come, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And scripture says in chapter two that she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. We come to this table now and feast from the one who chose to cling to us in our humanity, knowing that eventually his hands would be nailed to a cross. He gave us new names, calling us friends even the betrayers among us and around him. And he bore witness to transformation of the woman at the well, of the man born blind, of Peter. And so we come to this table as one community bound by Christ's blood and the realization of his legacy to reenact the redemption found in him. Mars Hill, as we come to this table, know that you will be satisfied and you do have everything that you need. Even some left over. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us pray together. How right 
and a good and joyful thing at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come today as you have in generations before us in the lineage of our faith? And may this meal nourish us in Christ's name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Marcel, we join our voices together as brothers and sisters to proclaim the good mystery of our faith that makes that truth so. So we say together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The meal is ready. We have gluten-free options at each one of the tables between the aisles, and we also have an opportunity for you to submit your prayers whether in the wall or Brian is in the back over here in front of me, if you'd like to pray with him specifically. So Mars Hill, my brothers and sisters, receive joyfully who you are, the body of Christ.